0: This morning, we're in Nehemiah chapter 4. We're going to look at verses 1 through 23, of course. Nehemiah chapter 4. Open your Bible, navigate on your device so that you can follow along. Follow along our uh, transcript at transcript.calvaryhanford.com. The topic we find there, threatened with attack by their enemies, Nehemiah instructs those helping build the wall to rally to him whenever they hear the blowing of the trumpet. The title of our message is his helpers, and the Nehemiah Brass. All right, now how many of you think you got that? Oh, good, Herb Albert and the Tijuana Brass. It's it's been a bone of contention all week, believe me. A lot of younger Christians who are less educated than us have never heard of Herb Albert. so God bless you. You guys need to stay for second service now, so, so I think that's gonna be a rough one, but let's pray for right now. Father, thank you so much for the opportunity to open up your word, uh, the freedom to do it, uh, not just in our country, Lord, but in the spirit, knowing that you're here to minister to us. And so you be our teacher, Lord, uh, and you tell us what we need to hear from this word. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name and those who agreed said, Amen. amen. It makes it worse that they don't know they are surrounded Butch and Sundance get in a gunfight with the local Bolivian police. Wounded, they take cover in a building. As they banter about next going to Australia and learning how to swim, the army arrives and hundreds of soldiers surround the area. Thinking that they can make a run to their horses, Butch and Sundance charge out of the building, six guns blazing. The image mercifully freezes to the sound of rifles firing repeatedly. I got to thinking about being surrounded by your enemies because that's the situation Nehemiah found himself in. The enemies are listed in verse 7, Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the Ashdodites. Bible commentators who know the geography of Jerusalem agree that they were surrounded on all four sides. If you are in Christ, you are surrounded on all sides by supernatural enemies. Jesus referred to Satan as the ruler of this world. Paul calls him the prince of the power of the air and the god of this world. John says we know that we are of God and the whole world is in the power of the evil one. Then in the book of Ephesians, we're told that Satan has a hierarchy of supernatural colleagues. They're called principalities, powers, the rulers of the darkness of this age, the spiritual hosts of wickedness. One resource describes Satan's rule over the world with these words. Satan is the major influence on the ideals, opinions, goals, hopes, and views of the majority of people. His influence also encompasses the world's philosophies, education, and commerce. The thoughts, ideas, speculations, and false religions of the world are under his control and have sprung from his lies and deceptions. I know you people keep up with uh, current events and, and all because I hear your conversations. Where do you think these ideas come from? When you sit there and you think, who could be that stupid? No one's that stupid, but Satan is that brilliant. And he's able to influence people in a direction away from God and towards disaster. Your Christian young adult goes off to college. He or she is mercilessly mocked and ridiculed for being evangelical. Their faith is undermined by godless philosophies. They're surrounded, as it were. I remember, I've told you this before, but I wasn't a Christian at the time, but my very first college class at... University of California, Riverside. It's a philosophy class, existential philosophy, I should have known. But uh, the very first thing that the professor said, who was the head of our department, was that existential philosophy was a response to the death of Christianity. And I thought, oh, okay, Christianity is dead. So he's been dead for me, so let's move on. And, And so there's a pervading attitude everywhere in the world. You are surrounded by this kind of an attitude. We are quite literally surrounded by the physical world that is in the power of the wicked one. But you've already thought about what I'm going to say next. We're also surrounded by the Lord and his heavenly host. In the Old Testament book of 2 Kings, Elisha's servant was afraid on account of the advances of the Syrian army against them. Elisha said to him, do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. Then the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Now, surrounded by both God and the God of this world, we have a choice to make as to who we want to focus upon. I'll organize my comments around two points. Number one, you can choose to live surrounded by him, or number two, you can refuse to live surrounded by them. Let's take a look at being surrounded by the Lord first in verses 1 through 6. Now, I don't think Elisha saw angels surrounding him all the time. It's more likely that he understood by faith that he must be surrounded by a heavenly host. He asked the Lord to open his servant's eyes to see by sight what could be seen by faith. We don't need to see supernatural beings surrounding us. We believe they're there on account of the word of God we can choose what Nehemiah chose to see, God surrounding him and not the enemy. So verse one, but it so happened when Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall that he was furious and very indignant and mocked the Jews. Sanballat was a continual irritant to Nehemiah and to the work of rebuilding. Now before you start thinking about people who irritate you, ask yourself, am I an irritant to others? Or am I a salve, a soothing and comforting, supportive balm to help them? Ask yourself and try to be honest. Don't ask others because they lie. Uh, I mean, uh, it's, it's, it's rough, you know, When uh, it's very difficult to actually tell people the truth. I, I mean, I shouldn't say that, but, you know, somebody says, hey, am I an irritant? Yeah, you sure are. <laughs> well, I don't think I am. Next thing you know, you're in a fist fight, you know, and then... It ruins your friends. So if you've got somebody you can be absolutely honest with and not feel bad about what they say, then go for it. But otherwise, uh, you can't really trust other people because they kind of sugarcoat things sometimes. But anyway, ask yourself, try to be honest. Something spiritual was going on behind the scenes that stirred up Sanballat against the Jews. Something spiritual behind the scenes is always going on. The world surrounds us, and that world is in the uh, power of the wicked one. And so uh, you, we're not wrestling against flesh and blood. We're, it's not just a, an irritating person who's having a bad day. Uh, there's actually a satanic influence behind that to try and destroy our walk with the Lord. sandballat's weapon of choice was mocking, and we see him wielding it skillfully in the next verse. And he spoke before his brethren in the army of Samaria and said, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they fortify themselves? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they complete in a day? Will they revive stones from the heaps of rubbish, stones that are burned? I'm sure everybody was having a nice laugh. I submit to you that mocking is spiritual recognition. Somebody has definitely noticed what you are doing, who you are, what you're trying to accomplish, and it's bothering them. And so they want to mock you and undermine your Christian position. Just always remember, you don't know what's going on in the hearts of individuals. And you can't tell by what they say to you and by how they act. Uh, Saul of Tarsus, we took a brief look at him uh, at one of our studies last week, breathing out threats against the church just days away from being saved by Jesus on the road to Damascus. And so you need to rise above all of this and say, hey, there, there's something spiritual going on in the background here, and so I'm going to meet this with prayer. I'm going to meet this mocking with prayer, and I'm going to be kind of excited that somebody is mocking my Christianity because at least they notice. You don't, you'd rather have that, wouldn't you, than somebody say, you're a Christian? Yeah, that, that's not good. And so let them mock. Now, Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, Well, whatever they build, if even a fox goes up on it, he'll break down their stone wall. Now, Tobiah basically says, If they do complete it, it won't be very sturdy. I think it reveals a worry, an anxiety, that the Jews just might be successful despite Sanballat's mocking. So Sanballat says, They're not going to build anything there. And Tobiah says, Yeah, and and if they do, uh, it'll probably be really weak. Again, when it comes to serving the Lord, opposition can be a great encouragement if we so choose. And so let's see how Nehemiah responded, beginning in verse four. Hear, O God, for we are despised. Turn their reproach on their own heads. Give them as plunder to a land of captivity. Do not cover their iniquity and do not let their sin be blotted out from before you, for they have provoked you to anger before the builders. Now, before you give Nehemiah a fist pump, That kind of reads like the end of every action movie, right? Where the bad guy gets it and and always gets it at least two or three times because he's never really dead the first time. And he rises up again and they blow his head off or something like that. And so, yeah, Nehemiah. But before you do that, let's talk about his approach. This kind of praying found throughout the Old Testament is called imprecatory. It involves judgment, calamity, or curses upon one's enemies or upon those perceived as the enemies of God. It's not okay to pray in precatory prayers in the church age in which we live. Nehemiah lived under the old covenant in which God promised to bless Israel for obedience, but he would bring calamity upon them for disobedience. Therefore, it was perfectly understandable that the Jews would pray in precatory prayers towards their enemies. They lived in a uh, blessing for obedience, curses for disobedience kind of a world based on their covenant, the covenant of the law. And so this is how they... Uh, This is how they functioned. Our model for prayer is what? You know, it's the Lord's prayer. It's not really a prayer that Jesus prayed. It's the Lord's prayer for us to give us kind of a template for prayer. And there's no way you can fit imprecatory statements into a prayer that follows the template that Jesus gave us. In fact, Jesus exhorted us to pray for our enemies, but praying for their death or for bad things to happen to them isn't exactly what he meant. And so if you say, hey, let's pray for our enemies. All right, Lord, kill them. Break their teeth in their mouth. Uh, Send them into captivity. That doesn't work in this age. We're to pray for their salvation first and foremost, and then for God's will to be done. And so um, lots of benefits from living in the church age, the age of grace rather than the age of law. And and you might think, I want to pray imprecatory prayers against my enemies, but you don't really want God to treat you that way. He treated Israel that way. He treated Israel's enemies that way. We're in an age of grace, and I, I pick grace over that anytime. time. And so I know it's hard to pray for your enemies, um, but uh, the Lord says to do it and uh, seek their salvation. So we built the wall, and the entire wall was joined together up to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. Nehemiah met opposition with the spiritual discipline of prayer. Even though his prayer wasn't precatory, you notice he left taking off any action against his opponents to God. He didn't rally people in an army and, and seek to destroy them. He said, Lord, you take care of it. This is what I'd like you to do to them because this is how we pray, but it, it, it's up to you. Just protect us and deal with our enemies. Mocking and ridicule were no threat to the Jews. They were no physical threat. They didn't need to respond at all let alone respond in kind. Can you do that? Can you refuse to respond? It's so hard to not defend yourself. Look, I know we all crave recognition and we all cave in at mocking and ridicule, but we need to rise above it. We need a little bit tougher skin under the armor of God, if especially surrounded by supernatural and natural opponents seeking to stumble us and to see us fail and to see us fall. And so uh, toughen up, we were talking about that just this morning, One of, uh, not so much me, but I was excited about it because it tied into the study. Some of the guys, uh, as they were praying this morning, say, hey, we need to just be a little bit tougher. Actually, we are talking about people in the world and, and how everything sways them. But it's, for Christians, too, we need to toughen up a little bit. Uh, I'm not saying mocking and ridicule is you know, the easiest thing in the world, but um, it shows that people notice you're a Christian. They've got something to mock. They have something to ridicule. Toughen up. It can't hurt you. The, you know, when, when Paul gives his list of things that can separate you from the love of God, he's talking about massive things like you know, death and destruction and angelic beings and stuff. He doesn't have on there a little bit of mocking and ridicule. And so uh, just you don't need to defend yourself uh, in every situation. And I'm not talking about a workplace situation where there are rules to follow and grievances and things. I mean, that's a whole other thing. I'm just talking about people in general uh, not treating you the way you think you should be treated. Let it go. Pray for them. Toughen up. Michael W. Smith released an album in early 2018 titled Surrounded. The lyric of the title song captures what we're saying about choice. He says, it may look like I'm surrounded, but I'm surrounded by you. And that's exactly what Nehemiah uh, would have put to music, I think. It may look like we're surrounded by these enemies, but Lord, we're surrounded by you. I could see him humming something like that. And it needs to be our tune too as we choose to live surrounded by him, by our Lord Jesus. Do you ever get a song stuck in your head? And you just can't get rid of it? I mentioned Herb Albert, so you're probably thinking of Spanish flea, right? Now you are. You've heard it in Elevate it's your whole life. But anyway, get a song stuck in your head. Figure out one of the worship songs that really ministers to you, uh, you know, a cycle through. And, and just, uh, you know, fall back on that. Hum that. It's better than In a DeVita. I mean, you know, you don't want to be doing that. That's, that's not helpful. Just listen to the drum solo from In a DeVita. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Raise your hand. God bless you. See, yeah. pop culture. We've got it here. Live surrounded by Jesus. Now, you can refuse to live surrounded by them in verses 7 through 23. If you don't think you can refuse to live surrounded by your opponents, then you're not familiar with Marine Corps Lieutenant General Louis B. Chesty Puller. Recognized by five Navy crosses and numerous other valor awards, Puller was equally well-known for his sayings. Two of them reveal an approach to being surrounded. They're on our left, they're on our right, they're in front of us, they're behind us, They can't get away this time. (laughs) And then this is my favorite. We're surrounded. That simplifies the problem. (laughs) Nehemiah took a page out of polar surrounded philosophy. Verse 7. Now it happened when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the Ashdodites heard that the walls of Jerusalem were being restored and the gaps were beginning to be closed, that they became very angry. Opposition broadened and it accelerated. It will in your life as well. The world, the flesh, the devil are relentless, lifelong enemies. As you get stronger in the Lord, they never get weaker. Not until the Lord deals with Satan, sin, and death at his second coming, and then at the creation of the new heavens and the new earth, will we be free from them. Verse 8, and all of them conspired together to come and attack Jerusalem and create confusion. Nehemiah possessed papers from the powerful potentate of Persia permitting the project to proceed peacefully. The enemies could not attack directly without defying the king. They were therefore going to resort to terrorism, quick sneak attacks that created confusion. Satan and his minions are terrorists. They rarely come at you directly. If they do, it's usually a diversion. They have lots of time to plan years ahead. Their plans are devious, they're sinister, they're vicious, they're evil. Most of the time you don't see them coming. They just explode in your face like something hidden in the ground. Verse 9, nevertheless, we made our prayer to God, and because of them, we set a watch against them day and night. Until now, Nehemiah had relied solely on prayer. Here he set a watch. Now, throughout the rest of this episode, we're going to see two complementary strategies. One is Godward, a total faith in God to oversee what was happening. The other is manward, a total commitment to persevere in the work despite opposition. And so verse 10, then Judah said, the strength of the laborers is failing and there is um, much rubbish that we are not able to build the wall. And our adversaries said, they will neither know nor see anything till we come into their midst and kill them and cause the work to cease. So it was when the Jews who dwelt near them came that they told us 10 times from whatever place you turn, they will be upon us. As it always does, fear crippled faith, and it it accelerates. They told us 10 times. "Uh, it's, It's terrible. And so the Jews started to say to themselves that the work was too hard, that it was too demanding, that was impossible. They started agreeing with the enemy. As far as the work being hard and demanding and impossible, of course it is. The things God commands you to do, you can't do them. You need the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. He must do the work through you. This is why so many Christians have a hard time because you read something in Scripture and you think, oh, I have to figure out how to do that. This is why there's such a huge industry uh, of Christian books because they're mostly, the popular ones are always how-to books how to do this for 40 days or 10 days or 50 days or whatever it is in order to grow. And they're all centered on you and what you have to do. Uh, And you you can't love your wife the way Christ loved the church, not in your own strength. Women, you can't submit to your husband as unto the Lord in your own strength. So give up on that and just say, Lord, I'm gonna do that because you say I can and that I have the power of the resurrection abiding within me in the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. And so uh, when I read the word, it is the enabling to do it. It's not a matter that I read God's word and then read somebody else's word on how to do it. The how-to happened on Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came down and gave power for us to obey the Lord. Then nothing's impossible with God, and you can do all things through Jesus strengthening you. Verse 13, therefore I positioned men behind the lower parts of the wall at the openings and I set the people according to their families with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And so Nehemiah issued everyone a CCW permit. Not quite, I guess, since these weren't really concealed weapons. We've been issued armor called the whole armor of God in Ephesians. I won't go through all of it. It's enough to know that we have it and that it is more than adequate for us to resist and overcome the devil. Lots of times in movies, crime movies or different movies, the, the hero gets shot and, and everybody's aghast, and then, but he's got his Kevlar vest on and luckily it worked for him that time and stuff. And so that's the idea. We may not be thinking about it, but we always have our armor on to overcome and resist the devil. And I looked and I arose and I said to the nobles and to the leaders and to the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, great and awesome. And fight for your brethren, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. The Lord would fight for them, and they were to fight. It sounds contrary. Some people say God helps those who help themselves. By the way, not in the Bible. A lot of people think that is, but it's not. And then others say just let go and let God. Both of them are wrong, they're extremes. God works, you work. It makes sense if you're a believer. There's another saying, it's attributed to Augustine, that though not perfect, comes closer to capturing this thought. Pray as though everything depended upon God, work as though everything depended upon you. It's a two kind of track thing that keeps the train moving. And it happened, verse 15, when our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had brought their plot to nothing, that all of us returned to the wall, everyone to his work. Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, the Ashdodites saw the hand of God in the faith of the Israelites. They didn't fear the Jews because they had armed themselves. They knew God had brought their plot to nothing. Don't leave your work for the Lord, but if you have left it, return to it. Uh, verse 16, so it was from that time on that half of my servants worked at construction, while the other half held the spears, the shields, the bows, and war armor, and the leaders were behind all the house of Judah. Those who built on the wall and those who carried burdens loaded themselves so that with one hand they worked at construction and with the other they held a weapon. The sword and the trowel, one in each hand, has become an endearing image for believers. As an image, it perfectly conveys the sense of these verses, faith and works in harmony. It's a good image, but a great image, but have you ever tried what he suggested with one hand? Uh, it, it just isn't feasible. And that's why in the next verse, he he says, so this is an image, but here's what actually went on in verse 18. Every one of the builders had his sword girded at his side as he built, and the one who sounded the trumpet was beside me. Then I said to the nobles, the rulers, and the rest of the people, the work is great and extensive, and we are separated far from one another on the wall. Whenever you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us here, uh, there rather, and our God will fight for us. I wish we knew what the trumpeter played. You know, they use trumpets a lot in Israel to to rally and stuff, but um, probably not all you need is love by the Beatles, right? Feel So Good by Chuck Mangione, maybe that. Or When the Saints Go Marching In by Louis Armstrong. That would have been a good choice. Verse 21, so we labored in the work and half of the men held spears from daybreak until the stars appeared. At the same time, I also said to the people, let each man and his servant stay at night in Jerusalem that they may be on our guard by night and working party by day. So they worked harder and longer than ever before. Often, and too often, a family will realize it is in trouble and decide that they need to spend more time together. But where do they find that extra time? Sadly, it's usually by spending less time and effort serving the Lord. Church attendance is sacrificed for quality family time. I understand that, and I don't understand that. And by the way, church attendance in America, it's at an historic low, with only 50% saying they are members of a church, down from 70% in 1999. And so, though we are a Christian nation, uh, people are not expressing their Christianity uh, in traditional or even non traditional ways. And so, um, at some point, we're going to have to face the fact that we're a Christian nation that doesn't have any Christians in it. And I'm not saying if people don't go to church, they're not Christians. Uh, but I, I am saying that um, Paul the Apostle wouldn't understand it. None of the Apostles would understand why people don't become members of a local fellowship. Uh, and uh, it's not that people go through phases because Jesus said, I'm going to build my church. And he meant both the church universal and the local church. I can say all this to you because you're here and you shouldn't be rebuked by it at all. You should be excited about it. And tell your friends who don't think they need to go to church that they're in sin. Uh, So, verse 23. So neither I, my brethren, my servants, nor the men of the guard who followed me took off our clothes, except that everyone took them off for washing. They slept and worked with their clothes on. Some of the workers, you might recall, were perfumers by trade. I bet they made a killing selling deodorant on the side. Oh, man. you, You know how you start to smell a little bit when you've been working and sweating and dirty think about the kind of way they had to live and they didn't have the porta potty guy come out you know with the porta potties and stuff it was smelly we've been given armor by god to keep on we're also described as being clothed in the white robe of jesus righteousness there's no taking it off to indulge in the world Satan hasn't taken a vacation for at least 7,000 years since the last time he was in the Garden of Eden tempting our parents. He has confirmed reservations after the Great Tribulation for the abyss and after the Millennial Kingdom in the Lake of Fire. For now, he and his are on the prowl. They work ceaselessly, 24-7, to ruin you. Like Nehemiah, you can choose who you see surrounding you. Set your mind by these two principles. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. We read that from 2 Kings 6. And then this one, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world, 1 John 4.4. 4. Around you, in you, as Lieutenant General Puller said, that simplifies the problem. Let's pray.